Thanks so much for letting me come. It's so good to be here with you. Now, some of you have known me for a long time. Some of you, I might be a less familiar face. But for about 18 years, I was working as a missionary, um, doing a lot of international ministry. And I had a really, I, I got a lot of questions from people because that was my job. So whenever I'd go to a church, whether it was here at LifeBridge, other churches in the area, or even my church that I attended in Kentucky, which is where I live, um, people would ask me a lot of questions about my job. And I grew to really dislike one particular question. Um, I'd let you try to guess what that was, but you're not going to be able to guess it. But I, I got a lot of the same questions. Like people would always say, what's the craziest place you've ever been? Or they'd say, what's the craziest thing you've ever eaten? And sometimes I'd be talking with kids about some of my ministry, right? And as soon as I say that I've eaten bugs, then they just go nuts. And they're asking, have you had a snake? Have you ever eaten a snake? Have you ever eaten a scorpion? I don't think you can eat scorpions. I don't know. Maybe somewhere they do that. So I get asked those questions a lot. And actually, that didn't really bother me too much. Or I'd be asked kind of intrusive questions like, have you met any nice young men there in your mission work, which was kind of rude. And then when I reached a certain age, people stopped asking that question, which was a little bit conspicuous and whatever. Or this isn't really a question, but people would say, so that's a really nice thing to do while you're young and single, which was kind of their way of saying, how long are you going to do this? Because we think you might be a little bit crazy. So, and even that didn't bother me as much as this question, which was the simple question, what do you do? And that would be more when I was meeting somebody. Like if I was meeting someone for the first time, even at my own church that I was attending, that's a really common question, right? You ask somebody's name, and if they kind of indicate that they might actually be okay with engaging in a conversation, then the next thing you ask is, well, what do you do? And I hated that question. I grew to really hate it. Because as soon as I would say, oh, well, I, you know, I work as a missionary or I work for a missions organization, the response that I would see from the person I was talking to was kind of like, oh, oh, you're like extra Christian. Like, you're, you're really, like, really into this Jesus thing. And I hated that because especially I would say then to that person I just met, what about you? What do you do? And they would say, oh, I'm just a blah, 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 blah. I'm just a parent who stays at home with my kids, or I'm just a teacher, or whatever it might be. I hated that, because instantly I could see this sense of comparison coming up just by saying a simple thing like, well, this is what I do with my life. Um, even friends of mine, I was a part of a small group at my church for a long time, and I'd catch friends of mine there saying things like, oh, well, you're on the front lines. And I'd think to myself, wait a second, you're a high school teacher, and you were just telling me about how you were helping your students apply for college. That, that's really valuable. Or you're the only believer in your entire office. You're the only person who knows Jesus. And in my work, I go for days without seeing people who don't know Jesus because all of my coworkers are Christians. How is it that I'm the one who's on the front lines? So it got to the point where sometimes I would just say things like, well, I work for a nonprofit and I get to, you know, like I, I wouldn't always even say because I hated having that sense of, of hierarchy come up between us the moment I met somebody. And isn't it interesting that we tend to do that, right? I mean, isn't it interesting that we, we can so easily categorize things as believers and we do that naturally? Maybe it's just a human thing, right? I think it's kind of a human thing to have labels. We like to label, we like to kind of figure things out. Where do I fit in this setting? Um, so maybe that's normal, um, but we tend, I think, as Christians, 
to separate things into categories. We have on the one hand, we have our things that we would say, well, these are like spiritual things, right? Sacred things. And then on the other hand, we have our secular things, our ordinary things. So on the, on the sacred side, on the holy side, we pray, we read our Bibles, we go to church, we tell somebody about Jesus, and then there's like the regular life stuff. I drive to work, I eat, I do the dishes, I teach my kids how to tie their shoes or brush their teeth or whatever. And we can do the same thing with our occupations. So you have your, you know, your special spiritual people, you have your pastor, your worship leader, and then you have your regular people, the Uber driver, the teacher, barista, whatever it might be. And we do this all the time, right? And, and we're, what we're kind of saying when we do this, especially when it comes to occupations, it's like, well, that guy over there, he's like varsity Christian, right? Like he's, he's the real deal. I'm just JV Christian. But at least I'm not a bench warmer like that guy over there. Like I'm, I'm just happy to be here, participate. I show up for practices. But I'll never be like that guy over there who's the star of the show. And I think it's important for us to ask ourselves the question, where did this come from? Why is it that when somebody decides to become a preacher, we might say, well, she's dedicating her life to Christian service. But we don't say that when somebody decides to become a plumber. Is the plumber less of a servant? Is the plumber's service less Christian? Why, why is it that we, we separate things in this way? And I think it's important for us to take a step back from the ways we think of things and consider. I've always looked at it this way. I've never even really thought about why I look at it this way, but maybe I should ask myself the question, is this thinking biblical? Does this come from God's word? Is this how God sees my job or my activities? Or is this more of a cultural approach to things? And especially in this area, I think we really need to ask, is this biblical or is it what I grew up around? Did I kind of inherit this from the air I was breathing, especially if we grew up in the church? Does God care about what I do? Does he care about my jobs? Does he care about my activities? Or is he mostly just interested in these spiritual sides of things? I'm, every time I say spiritual today, please imagine the biggest air quotes in the world around it, right? Is there such a thing as a higher calling? So this has always been an interesting question to me because, again, I spent about 18 years of my life, most of my adult life, doing full-time ministry. And I was working a lot with 20-somethings, with younger adults who really wanted to make a difference in the world. So the question of calling is one that I've given a lot of thought to. But it became particularly personal for me when I met my husband. Because I had spent, again, at this point, almost 18 years, very focused on ministry and had always assumed I'd kind of bump into some guy who was doing the same thing and we'd get married and keep on doing that kind of ministry for the rest of our lives. And when I crossed paths with Philip, he was a carpenter and was very open to doing whatever God called him to do in life and felt pretty confident that that was woodworking. And I didn't know where to put that in my head. I didn't know how that fit with my view of what God had called me to do with my life. But of course, we started dating, and as we're doing this, there were some very prominent and influential voices who were saying things like, can you really date a guy who isn't called to full-time missions? 
and have you had the talk with him yet? You know, like the talk where you tell him that you would never be able to marry anyone who wasn't called a full-time missions. Well, that sounds like a manipulative talk, so I didn't have that talk. My talk was with Jesus where I was saying, God, my whole life is yours, and you've called me to this ministry that I love, and I'm thriving in it, and also you brought this guy into my life who's perfect for me, and he's doing something very different. How does this work? And I sensed the Lord leading me to continue to walk forward, holding both of those things in open hand, and I learned a whole new level of trust and surrender. And it was terrifying. It really was. I've never known anxiety like that before. Now, you kind of know how this ends because I brought somebody with me today. But let's talk about, sorry for the spoiler, <laughs> right? um, but let's talk about what the Bible has to say about our vocation. So there's so many ways we could go with this because the Bible actually has a ton to say about work. And you guys know that because Pastor John has given you some really good teaching over the last few weeks. Um, the Bible mentions work over 800 times. Did you know the Bible talks about the kinds of work we do more often than it talks about worship or praise? That's interesting, isn't it? But as I was praying, and I, I really came to this verse over and over again, and it's just really simple. Colossians 3.17, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, so that's all-encompassing, right? The things I do or the things I say. Whatever you do, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, that's a really simple verse. It might be familiar to you. If you're like me, you might have memorized it as a kid in Sunday school. Whatever you do, do it in the name of Jesus. Very simple. So let's talk a little bit about the context where this verse was written. This verse comes right at the peak of a letter that Paul was writing to the church in Colossae. Now, Paul was in prison at the time, and he was writing to a church that actually hadn't met him before. They had been brought to Christ through someone else that he had brought to Christ, so that's kind of cool. And there's a couple of things that he emphasizes. I'm going to cruise through them in like a minute and a half, all right? So you can just jot down a verse and go back to it if you're like, oh, that's intriguing. Um, Paul emphasizes a couple of things. One of the things he emphasizes is the supremacy of Christ. He talks about how Jesus is everything and how all of creation is underneath Jesus' reign and authority. He says Jesus holds it all together and he's reconciled everything to God. So Jesus is number one. He's supreme. That's what Paul's saying. And then he goes on to talk about who we are because of what Jesus has done. So he's telling the Colossian believers, and he uses some wonderful imagery, he says, you were rescued from the domain of darkness, transferred into the kingdom of light. He says, you were once enemies, you were far from God, but you've been brought near because of Jesus. And you are in Christ, so you're hidden in him. You're rooted in him. And Christ is in you. That's the hope of glory. That's the strength. That's the assurance we have of all the good that is to come. And Paul, as he so often does, reminds us, as well as the Colossian believers, of who we are before he moves into instructions of how we are to live. He also warns them, this is a young church, and so he warns them about false teaching that could come their way. Now, people disagree, they aren't quite sure, like Paul isn't real specific, it says, here's the heresy to watch out for. He just warns them against, against false teaching. He says, don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophy, with high-sounding nonsense. Don't be led astray. And there's a couple of ways this could have gone, all right? So, the church in, Colossian, in Colossae was surrounded by lots of kind of pagan beliefs, and so that would have included some superstitions and fears, um, like 
ways that you needed to protect yourself from evil spirits. All right, so can you see why Paul wanted to talk about how Jesus is the best and the most powerful and number one? And the other thing is that there were actually also Jewish congregations, synagogues in that city. These were traditional Jews who hadn't accepted Jesus as their Messiah. And so there was the tendency or the temptation, Paul was warning the Colossian church and saying, hey, just because you have have chosen Jesus and you're following Jesus and Jesus, of course, comes to us through this wonderful tradition um, of, of God's calling of the people of Israel, that doesn't mean you need to take every tradition that they have. And there could be this temptation to feel that they needed to follow through with all of the, the Jewish law of, of celebrating these festivals and feasts, ways that you can eat, ways that you shouldn't eat, circumcision, stuff like this, as like a, an extra, an add-on. And what Paul is saying is, hey, Jesus is everything. You are complete in Christ. Don't be led astray by thinking you need to add something to what Jesus has done for you. Jesus is big enough to take care of you. You don't need these superstitions to protect you from evil because Jesus has done that. And you don't need to add these extra things just in case so that God can be extra happy with you because Jesus is enough. See, Jesus isn't just another religion. He's not just one, one more way, one more option for the people in Colossae or for you and me. He is an entirely new way of living. We were dead because of our sin. And because of Jesus, we've been brought back to life and we are an entirely new creation. So Paul is reminding us there is an entirely new way to be human. There's a whole new way to be human and it changes everything about our lives. So he goes on and says, hey, we're brand new. We've been given new life, so let's live that way. And he encourages them, set aside the old way of living, and then by the grace that God gives, choose Jesus' way of living. And he gives a wonderful illustration. He says, clothe yourselves with mercy, compassion, gentleness, kindness, and mostly love. I love that he uses that illustration because I've got to choose my clothing, but it's not optional, right? Like it's, but it's not automatic like breathing either. So Paul says, let's be deliberate to live the way that Jesus calls us to live. We want to be more and more like Jesus. And then he says, let this message about what Jesus has done and about his kingdom, let it fill your lives. Let it permeate everything you do. And then he gets here. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do all in the name of Jesus. So he's been building up to this point, and he's, it's how he's calling us to live. Now, when Paul says, whatever you do, does he really mean whatever? Like, does God care if I plant tulips in my yard? Does he notice whether or not there are lines painted on the street? Is God interested about trash in the park or trash in the ocean? Does he care how our kids are taught their ABCs? Or like when our kids learn their letters and their shapes and the animal noises, if the pig goes oink, oink, or if the pig like loudly snorts, is like there's a difference, right? And, I think there's probably, we could get in big fights about which way is best to t teach your child the pig noise. But is God paying attention to these things? Does it matter to him at all? Now let's remember, Jesus, as Paul has pointed out to us, he's king over all creation. Everything was created by him and through him and for him. There's nothing that escapes his notice. There's nothing that escapes his care. So what I want to lay out for us today is that our tendency to divide the sacred, the holy, the spiritual, and the secular, the ordinary, the everyday, is not biblical at all. 
That's not God's way of looking at things. That's a human way of looking at things. I mean, if you think about it, just in the Old Testament, some of those familiar stories, we see that God calls and anoints priests and prophets, but he also tells Noah to build a big boat and turn it into a floating zoo, right? The story of Ruth is all about work that takes place in a field. Or we have Joseph, who was set apart by God to be really good at administration, and it kept not just God's people, but so many nations from starvation. God is interested in every part of our lives. One of my favorite examples of this, there's a guy named, he's not as well known as Joseph and Noah, but there's a guy named Bezalel that uh, God actually uses powerful words to say he's filled him with the spirit of God to make him really good with his hands. He's just really good at making stuff. God anoints him. He sets him apart for that task. And Jesus, his parables, so often they reference really ordinary workaday stuff. His parables talk about baking bread, sweeping the house to find a lost coin, tending sheep. Now, tending sheep and even baking bread from scratch, that's not our normal stuff, but it was pretty normal to the people who were learning from Jesus. And his strongest rebuke is for those who thought they were the spiritual elite. Isn't that interesting? We like to label, and Jesus likes to flip those labels on their head. Jesus is the one who says, if you want to be great, be a servant. He's the one who says, if you want to come to me, you must come like a little child. He's the one who says, your righteous acts should be done not for show, but in secret. Pray in secret. Give in secret. That's who Jesus is. In fact, those, those divisions that we're, that we're so comfortable with, those were common in the church in Colossae as well. So Paul actually calls that out. He says, hey, it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters. None of those divisions are familiar to us, right? None of those ways of classifying, like, have you gone around and called anybody a barbarian recently? If you have, good job being creative with your insults, but that's, like, not typically what we would say. But we could also say, Paul would say to us today, it doesn't matter if you're black or white. It doesn't matter if you're Democrat or Republican. It doesn't matter if you're a street sweeper or a street preacher. It doesn't matter if you're blue collar or white collar. What matters is Jesus. Human thinking looks for labels. It categorizes, it stratifies. Jesus looks at our hearts. So there's a helpful concept for us, I think, with this. You know what else would be helpful is a Kleenex. Could somebody get me a Kleenex? Thank you. Um, I'm, I got a negative COVID test. I just want everyone to know. But there's another helpful concept for us, and that's the concept of common grace. All right? So we, we're familiar with grace, right? We talk about grace a lot in the church. Grace, grace is like our favorite thing. And we've got a definition, a classic definition, unmerited favor. Grace is a gift that God has been given that we don't deserve, all right, or that God has given us. We could actually separate that into a couple of categories. We have saving grace, and we also have what's called common grace. Saving grace is that classic, it's by grace we have been saved through faith. Saving grace is for those of us who know Jesus. By his grace, that's a gift he's given us. We can't earn it. Common grace um, is really best, I mean, is, you, you see it throughout scripture, but here's a classic example of it. 
God gives his sunlight. Jesus is speaking here, by the way. It would be red if you were reading it in a red letter Bible. Thank you so much. Jesus is speaking, and he says that God gives sunlight to both the evil and the good alike, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. And what Jesus is saying is, hey, God doesn't withhold his goodness from the people who don't follow him. And we see this actually all over creation and all over scripture. When you read the Psalms, how often does it talk about all of creation belonging to God? It says how he opens his hand and satisfies the desire of every living thing. How all creatures, he says even animals and people, can shelter under God's goodness. And so there's this idea that we see throughout scripture that that God is constantly giving gifts to all of creation and caring for all of creation. Here's some examples. Let's think about this. How many of us noticed beautiful fall leaves this year, right? Beautiful colors, wonderful. My husband and I went camping in in Kentucky and just enjoyed red and orange and yellow all around us. Beautiful. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but you do know that atheists see beautiful fall colors too. Did you know that? Have you ever thought about that? Like they don't see shades of brown and gray when they look outside in October. They're not like, what's everybody, what's with all these Instagram posts with a pumpkin spice latte and all these ugly leaves? I don't understand. Like, atheists also see beautiful autumn colors. Or how about, you know, there's this, con- I've never done this before, but you can plant a kernel of wheat and it will grow and you harvest it and you grind it up and then you bake it and you pull it out of the oven. Maybe some of you in quarantine learned how to do this. A lot of people did. I've never done it. But you pull it out of the oven and you slice it and steam rises up from it, right? And this aroma, and you're like, that is the smell of home. My mom didn't even bake bread, but it smells like home to smell this. And you put butter on it, you know, and it just like melts onto it. You take a bite. Oh, man. Did you know that that works for Buddhists too? If a Buddhist plants wheat and harvests it, makes bread out of it, eats it, it will taste delicious to them. In fact, Probably the best bread I've ever eaten was in the Middle East, you know? And I don't know, I don't know, guys, but I'm being ridiculous, right? I'm totally being ridiculous. But have we thought about that before? That God is constantly giving good gifts, even to people who deny he exists. That's a really good God. Maybe a better way of describing this than autumn leaves or fresh-baked bread. Think about advances in technology that have brought us to a much better place in how we practice medicine. Used to be that they didn't sanitize their instruments because they didn't know. And a lot of people died. And at a certain point, we, we continue to progress in our understanding of science and medicine. And more, fewer people die for, from things that they, they might have died from even 50 years ago. It saved so many lives. Isn't it interesting to consider that some of the scientists and some of the doctors who have made those discoveries weren't Christians, and a lot of people have benefited from that who don't even know that God exists. And yet, isn't it God who gives that good gift? Didn't God know that that if we sanitize our medical instruments, if they're sterilized, it was going to be better for those patients? Interesting. And we could talk a long time about what's wrong with the world, in fact, if, we, you know, if you look online for two seconds, you're going to find like infinite jokes about 2020 being the worst, and they stopped being funny in July. So we can talk for a long time about what's wrong with the world, but 
We, there's also a problem we have to recognize that there's a lot that's good where maybe it seems like there shouldn't be. What's going on there? Why is there still good in the world, even in places where people aren't following God? So one of the ways that, one of the verses that comes to mind when I think about this concept is in James. In James chapter 1, the first thing James says about God is that he is a giving God. And he says this, whatever is good and perfect is a gift that comes down to us from God our Father. So let's picture a God who gives lavishly and generously all the time. That's who our God is. And yes, that constant giving of good is an invitation for us to look to him, to choose him, to follow him. But God also gives with no strings attached, knowing that there are some people who will deny him, some people who will never acknowledge him, who will never follow him. He continues to give good gifts to all that he has made. That's who our God is. Isn't that mind-boggling that he's as generous as all that? It's who he is to delight in his creation. Let's think about a really good quarterback, all right? You watched a really good quarterback recently? I haven't. Our team has not been doing well. Um, But think about a really good quarterback throwing that Hail Mary pass, right? It just goes, you know, like so many yards, and it goes right to the receiver, and then they win the game, and everybody's cheering. Think about everything that was involved in throwing that pass. The, the mechanics in the quarterback's body, right? And the, the fact that as it spirals, it's going to fly better, you know? And, and think about the math behind that arc, like just calculating where it's going to rise and where it's going to fall. And the fact that God knows all of that, and he sees all of that, he created all of that, and he delights in that. He delights in seeing his creation doing something beautiful, Does your imagination have room for a God who can delight in a quarterback, even a quarterback who's not a Christian, because God sees the beauty of something that he's made? Do you have room in your mind for that? Because a lot of us, when we close our eyes and picture God, if we do that, and of course, you know, we don't know what he looks like, and it's probably not the paintings of Jesus we've seen, all right? But if we close our eyes and imagine God, probably the expression that we imagine being on his face is a little bit disappointed. Like, I don't know what it is I've done wrong, but it's probably something. We consider him to be kind of preemptively ticked off at all of us, like just Let's just be ready for the fact that he's probably not happy. Do you have space in your mind for a God who is delighted in his creation? Who is so full of love and goodness and generosity? Because that's the God we serve. And because that is true, that means that when I give my gifts, when I give my time, when I give my labor, when I give generously, even knowing that I might not get something in return, even knowing I can love my neighbor and they might not ever want to come to church, but I can love them anyway. I get to do that reflecting this generous God who never stops lavishing his love and his goodness on his creation. Our work is a reflection of our God who gives and gives and gives. So, whatever you do, And common grace helps expand our minds to be able to see who God is in a much bigger way, I think. Yes, God longs for people to know him. 
Of course, when God sees a quarterback throw that beautiful pass, he sees the quarterback's heart. He knows whether or not that quarterback loves him, follows him. Yes, he wants us to know him. He wants, his, wants people to follow him, but he also delights and loves and gives. He's not just interested in saving souls so that he can put them to work saving more souls, right? There's not an inch of his creation that escapes his notice, and he's constantly at work in all of it to make all things new. That's the redeemer that our God is. So our work is an opportunity to reflect that. Just like Adam and Eve in the garden, we've been given our little garden to cultivate and to keep, to bring about order and beauty and goodness, truth, creativity, and all of these things reflect who God is because we're created in his image. So I'm not trying to downplay, by the way, those of us who are called to ministry full-time. Remember, I did that most of my adult life and may very well do that again. What I want us to understand is that God is so much bigger and more creative than that, that he's not just limited to those things, but that he wants to work through his whole church, all of us. That's why he calls us a body. And so what I think, when it comes to this whatever you do, I could oversimplify that and say, you, you know, with that question of calling, because I think a lot of the time we can wrestle with that. Am I really doing what God has for me? Or is there something more? Am I called to something different? We can wrestle with that. And I think what's valuable for us is remembering it's whatever we do, doing it for Jesus. Now, I could oversimplify that and say, well, it says whatever you do, so whatever you're doing, that's what you're called to. But some of you might be in a job you need to leave. You know, like we can't, we can't just over-spiritualize it and say like, yeah, well, I'm, I'm stuck here, but it's where God has me, when maybe it's like, actually, that's just not healthy, and it's okay for you to grow, and, you know, like, we, we, can't, over, we can't, like, spiritualize our fear, right, or our, dis, our refusal to grow or change. Uh, but on the other hand, some of us have a hard time settling down and committing to anything, and are constantly looking for the next thing, so let's also not spiritualize our lack of commitment, and let's recognize that where I am right now, God has a way for me to reflect him there. And at the same time, I'll position myself to be led by him if there's something more that he has. And if you put yourself in a position where you say, God, whatever you say, whatever you do, I'm going to do it, then you don't need to be stressed about him leading you because he's way better at leading us than we are at being led. If you position yourself and say, God, I'm available to you, you can trust him and you can be faithful where you are. That's what I've learned anyway. So here's what happened to me. After six weeks of dating, this guy, Phil, says to me, I already know that I want to marry you. We've been officially dating for six weeks. We'd known each other a couple months. And I said, I know, because I did. <laughs> I don't know. And I didn't tell him that I was ready to marry him because I was still really grappling with this question of calling. Is it okay for me to step away from, you know, this thing I've been doing for a really long time and been so invested in now, I, I ought to clarify and say, Phil was very supportive of my ministry. He loved it. And he was ready to, you know, be, continue to be supportive of that. I remember one time when we were dating, he said, so, cart before the horse, which was our way of saying, let's talk about the future. He says, cart before the horse. We get married. You're doing this missions thing. If that means mom's out of town more often and I'm home with the kids, that's fine. And I was like, that's amazing. But... I knew that it might that the all-in requirement of what I was doing was not going to work with someone who else who wasn't doing that, and I also knew that God was leading me to potentially at least consider something different. 
And it was really scary, for one thing, because the first thing that popped into my head when I even thought about leaving that, that ministry was, who am I without it? Which was how I knew I needed to surrender it. And I also was scared that I would, you know, become just a selfish, isolated, materialistic person and not be fruitful and all of that. And I remember telling Phil that, and he was like, that's like saying that everything God's done in your life up to this point would just disappear if you got a different job. I'm like, okay, that's a very fair point. It's about Jesus, not about me. So one morning as I was wrestling with all of this, I woke up, I was still in bed because it was a Saturday, and the first thing that comes to mind was so clearly from the Lord. He said, if I wanted to call Phil to missions, I would. And I was deeply convicted. Because see, all this stuff I've been teaching was stuff I knew, right? Like I had good thoughts and theology about vocation and work, um, but in my heart I had tons of hierarchy and pride. I still had it this idea that what I was doing was somehow better because, I don't know, because I didn't make any money. I don't know why. And the Lord began to both convict me, bring me to a place of repentance, and expand my view of who he is and how he wants to use us. He kind of leveled it out. Where I had seen, you know, levels like that, he just kind of opened it up like that where I was able to see, wow, what matters is obedience. What matters is being faithful to reflect God where he's called us. What does that look like? I called it vocational snobbery because I realized I had it and I had to repent. <laughs> so several months later after we were married, um, I was on sabbatical, which by the way, I had been in full-time ministry for 18 years and needed a break. Help your pastors take breaks because that's really healthy. So I was on a sabbatical, which meant I was reading a lot of really good books and taking my dog to the park a lot. And I read this quote from uh, a guy named Dan Allender who's, he, he runs a seminary, he's a, a counselor, a speaker, and an author, uh, and I, I, I'd owned his book for, since like before I met Phil, but I'd never gotten around to reading it. I was reading it, and I read, read this, this thing that made me just stop in my tracks, and I thought, I wish I'd read this a few months ago, it would have made this whole process a lot easier. But Dan says, what we do for a living, or in ministry, or in family, life, or friendship, is merely the context for our calling. Our calling is not what we do, it's how we do it. And he goes on to say, like, I could stop running a seminary, I could stop my counseling practice, I could stop all of these things and do something entirely different, and I would still be walking in my calling if I bring the unique ways that God has made me to the thing, to the doors that he opens for me. Each of us, we've been created in the image of God, and we have unique ways that we reflect him. And each of you like me, you have something about your story that demonstrates God's redemption in a way that my story doesn't. And we bring that wherever we are. We have this opportunity to reflect Jesus that no one else can do in the same way because of how uniquely we've been made. So what is the way that God has made you? Your gifts, your strengths, the, the unique aspects of your story that he has set up for you to be able to reflect him. That's probably a better question for us than what our job ought to be, right? How do we, what do we bring to it? So the next part after he says whatever you do, he says do it in the name of Jesus. Now, what does that mean when we say in the name of Jesus? When I was a kid growing up, we would pray in Jesus' name, amen. For a while, my sister would correct my dad. If he prayed and didn't say in Jesus' name, she'd chime in with, in Jesus' name, 
Amen. Now, are those magic words at the end of the prayer? Is God not going to hear me if I don't say, in Jesus' name, amen? And if it's really that special that we invoke his name, maybe we should learn how to pronounce it like, like his mother did in Aramaic, but I'm not going to even try to do that. I mean, my point is, it's not a formula, right? Or maybe doing something in Jesus' name is, let's go back to that quarterback. Let's say we got a quarterback throwing a Hail Mary pass, and he's a Christian. So afterwards, he kneels and points to the sky, and he's got Bible verses on his shoes. Is that how we do what we do in the name of Jesus? Well, now, and I'm not talking about any particular quarterback right now, but couldn't that quarterback do that and also live deceptively, right? Couldn't, couldn't somebody say, in Jesus' name, and also be really a jerk to their family or their neighbors? And if so, are they really doing what they do in the name of Jesus? Or are they just putting nice Bible verses on things? So how do we work in Jesus' name? Do we put gospel tracts with the invoices when we send them out? Do we put a logo that includes a cross or have like hidden Bible verses on our websites? Like how do we do our work in Jesus' name? So when the Bible talks about a name, it's really more referring to somebody's character and who they are. That's why there's this huge emphasis in stories on what somebody's name means. So I love how the uh, New Living Translation puts this verse because it actually says, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus. So whatever you do, do it representing Christ. Live like Jesus. It means that I do it as unto Jesus. He's the one that I serve, not my boss, not my reputation, not the bottom line, not my need to be needed, but Jesus, which is really good because all those other things are going to be terrible masters. I want to do it for him. We do it like him. Oh, I got those switched around, y'all. We're created in the image of God, and we get to bring the character of Jesus as we become more and more like him by God's grace. We get to bring who Jesus is into the things that we do. We do it with him. We're not alone in this. Guys, if you try to like really reflect Jesus and do all this stuff but all on your own, we're going to fail miserably at it. I knew a mechanic, really good guy, who was trying to fix this van of ours for the ministry we worked for. The man, the, the van had been given to us, like people sometimes do give really lousy vans to ministries, and it wouldn't run. So this mechanic, sweet Christian man, prayed as he was fixing the, the van and figured out what was wrong. He put it on our invoice. He says, prayer, he didn't charge for it. Now, you don't have to put it on the invoice to do it in the name of Jesus, but He's with us in everything that we do. We can bring him with us to things like, I love picturing my friend Joe with his like greasy oil, you know, motor oil hands just praying over this engine and then fixing it. And uh, we also do it by the strength that God gives. We're empowered by him to be like Jesus anywhere that we are, whatever we do. And that really leads us to this last part of the verse because it says giving thanks to God the Father through him. Gratitude reminds us of our position before God. Gratitude reminds me I'm dependent on him for everything. I can't do anything on my own. It brings us to a place of prayer. And honestly, you guys, it, not one of us can do this perfectly, right? Like we can, we can have this, real, like I could feel real pumped about like, all right, I'm doing it. Whatever I do, I'm doing it for Jesus. I'm going to go out and I'm going to do it. But actually we all fail in this all the time. The only one who ever perfectly reflected the image of God was Jesus himself. And when Jesus was on the cross, he said the words, it is finished. Because he had accomplished the work on our behalf that we could never do. So let's remember 
that we can do this from a place of identity and belonging. Our, our work is not for our identity, it's from our identity of what Christ has already done for us. We can, we can cry out to him for help. We can be quick to repent when we've made mistakes because we know that he's with us, that he's for us, and that he has already accomplished what we could not accomplish, living perfectly, loving us, redeeming us, forgiving us. It's really all because. So let's remember that. And uh, I'm just going to pray for us. As we, as we ponder that, I'm going to pray for us, and we'll spend some time in worship. God, we recognize that only you can accomplish these things. And we recognize, too, Father, that, that you are so much bigger and wiser than we are. So, God, I pray first that you would help us to be content with the little garden that you've placed us in. We want to be ready to dream with you about other things you may want to do through us, but let us first be content with where we are, not striving for more, but looking for the ways that we can honor you where you've put us. And God, teach us how to live and to work and to dream from that place of knowing that we're loved by you and that there's nothing we can do to add to that. In Jesus' name.